Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. If you're a Christian and you don't completely live in a hole and you don't completely keep it secret, um, you eventually will stand trial. And by that I mean eventually someone is going to ask you to talk about it. They're going to say, give a defense for what it is you believe. And that could be really nasty or it could be super normal. It could be a coworker at a bar sometime just being like, what do you believe? And they're not being mean or anything. They just want to know, what is, what is Christianity? It could be intense. Somebody could actually put you on your back feet and be accusing you of things and force you to give a defense for what you believe. Jesus himself affirms two things about this. One, that it's going to happen. And two, that it's actually a part of the way that the the kingdom advances. It's a good thing. Listen to this from Luke 21. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, which is exactly what's happening to Paul in this Acts reading. And Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. We spent the first year, we're a new church plant if you're visiting. We've uh, not even a year old yet, but we've spent the first half of our year studying the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and the second half of the year studying the life of the church in this book, the book of Acts. And guess how both narratives end? In court. Both of them climax in an intense, crazy court scene. That's better than a few good men. There are two main entities that bring both Jesus, we read it today, both these stories, parts of it at least, and Paul into trial. And those are the political and the cultural powers. These are the powers that run the world. In biblical times, what was the center of political power? Rome, right? This was where law, organization, military power, everything came from. And Jerusalem was the city and the culture that represented cultural power. So you see this in the Gospels. The Jewish tradition was the center of ethics and morality and philosophy. They were the producer of all these things. And eventually, Jesus and Paul come to stand trial before both because their lives are so unique and otherworldly and beautiful and challenging that eventually these powers bring them together and say, speak for yourself. How do you fit into our box? Give a defense for what in the world you are or what you're teaching. So we're going to focus on Paul's story today in this amazing court scene, which uh, Matthew did a wonderful job reading. And I think there are three accusations that are levied against the church through Paul that we want to look at because I think the church today still receives these accusations. And then I want us to see how Paul responds. And if you're a Christian today, there is so much to glean from this passage, it astonishes me. And if you're here and you're visiting and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you might have had some of these questions before about the church. So it's a really cool opportunity to see how Paul and the church respond. Sound good? So three accusations. Let's begin with just a little context for this court scene. This is really in Acts 26. There's only two chapters after this. Next week is the end of our series on Acts, which is kind of sad because Acts is the best. Um, But basically, 
this is the culmination of the whole book as Paul has preached and done all this stuff all over the Mediterranean. And the cultural and political powers, Jews and Romans and Greeks and everybody's just had enough with them and they start arresting him. And he basically gets bounced around all over the place from court to court to court because either people can't convict him or they don't know what to do with them and so they just keep moving him higher. Uh, we have a lot of lawyers in our church and I don't really understand how this works. But imagine, I, this is how I think it goes. You start with a little thing that like starts out with your neighborhood council and then it gets kicked to like Madison Court. And then somebody's like, I don't know what to do with this. Knock him to the Wisconsin Court. And then from there it goes to the Supreme Court. That's exactly what happens to Paul. He just keeps on getting passed around because people don't know what's going on. And finally, because he prefers to be tried by Rome instead of the Jews in Jerusalem, he appeals to Caesar. And so he's here in the town of Caesarea and he's waiting to basically go to the Supreme Court, the big court, to be tried. And while he's waiting, he comes before Festus, who is the governor. So think of our governor. Who's our governor right now? Exactly. <laughs> and the king, the puppet king, uh, which is Agrippa. And Bernice is his sister. She's the queen. So let's read. Uh, this, is verse, this is verse, not verse, chapter 25, verse 23 is how it begins. Would you flip there with me? So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Think fanfare and flags and all the kind of stuff. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now let's think about how dramatic this scene is. Agrippa and Bernice, I don't know how you'd say her name. These are the things I should have thought about beforehand. But they... Uh, are dressed in, in purple to represent royalty because they're, they're kings and queens, right? Festus is probably in scarlet, which is the sign of the governorship, and they're with all the people there. Great pomp. You got to think this is like all the fanfare and the money has been put into making this scene look really imposing and beautiful. And then in comes Paul in chains who's been in prison, and so he's in rags in between all these people. You have to picture, pick your story where there's a person who's brought in before a king or a queen unjustly like that. My image is Luke Skywalker before the court of Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Take it or leave it if you want, but you can think of any that are like that. It's a scene of power against utter weakness. And yet, as we know, Paul has the Holy Spirit, which like Stephen makes his face shine. He's the one with real authority, even though he's in rags and chains. But there's more to this because Agrippa his first name is Herod. He's Herod Agrippa II, and there's a deep history here in the Bible. The Herodians are this evil, wicked, bad guy dynasty throughout the biblical story. Herod the Great is famous for freaking out because he heard the Jewish Messiah was born in a little town called Bethlehem to a poor couple, and he was so intimidated by that that he slaughtered all the male children in Israel. That's how the Herodians start. His son, Antipas, was the tetrarch of Galilee, and he beheaded John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus calls him a fox in the Bible. Go tell that fox. He doesn't even talk to him. Do you notice in our gospel reading, he's speaking to the guy that beheaded his beloved John, and he won't even talk to Herod. His son slew James, son of Zebedee, Agrippa I. And Agrippa I's son is Agrippa II, which is right here. So Paul knows that story, okay? This one family has literally been responsible for the persecution and slaughtering of so many people in this beautiful movement, mercilessly without any reason. 
So the scene is so tense. Accusation number one. Here we go. You're an enemy of the state is the first charge brought against Paul and the church. This is something both Jesus and the church continually deal with. Basically, you're seditious. You're breaking the law. You're a disturber of the peace. This whole church Christianity thing is here to just like be a nuisance and break everything up. And it's interesting, this usually happens because the cultural powers go and tattletale to the political powers and say they're messing up the government, even if they are or they're not. So think of Daniel and the lions then, if you know that story well. Daniel's great. The king loves Daniel. Uh, but then these guys trick Daniel and breaking a law that they created. And then they're like, king, you got to kill him now and throw him in it. And the king's like, oh, shucks, I like Daniel. You know, it's like, Whatever. Um, I think you see the same with, with Jesus and Pilate. Remember, Pilate is like, I don't think you've done anything wrong. He ends up condemning him, but he washes his hands. And I think it's the same with Paul. It's not explicit in this chapter, but in the chapter before in Acts, it's made explicit that it's being brought against him, that he is disobeying Caesar. He's breaking the law. He's seditious. He's being anti-Roman. Now, what about the church today? I don't know if we get called seditious or rebellious or an anarchist group, but I do think there are ways that we feel from both the cultural right and left that we're kind of anti-American or government. I think from the right, it could be that we're not nationalistic enough. We're not America first, and that's a problem for some people. From the left, I think sometimes there's a lot of tattletelling that we're kind of regressive and we're not working towards the common good with the rest of culture. Whatever the charge is, it's that the church is this like bubble that's set apart and it's against the common national good. You guys feel me on that? How does Paul respond? Again, this is in Acts 25. I'll get to our passage. But he explicitly says to Festus, I have committed no offense against Caesar. He appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. So he's saying, I'm a, I'm a proud part of the Roman world. I'm not a, a lawbreaker. I'm a Roman citizen. He appeals to it. But then look at Paul's respect in his tone to Herod, a Herodian, in our verse, our, our uh, chapter. So look at it with me. Verse 1. You guys there? The drama's so thick, he says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then you got to imagine everything dying down. The music in Java's court kind of settles down for a second, so Luke gets to speak. Verse 2. <clears throat> Clears his throat. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, and therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. Can you believe the, the humility and the poise and the respect that Paul shows these people? He's not, he's not an anarchist even though he has a lot of reason to be angry. So whether it's what he says explicitly or the way he acts, the message is crystal clear. Jesus and his church are not enemies of the state. And I know you probably didn't come in this morning thinking this is a real problem for me. I feel like the church is like a treasonous organization. Um, but I think this hits us because we are called to be a part of and to bless and to cheer for the places that we are in and the governments we're in. Um, I'll tease that out because that deserves to be nuanced, but listen to these scriptures. Listen to 1 Peter 2. This is something Peter says. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Isn't that interesting? 
Paul would say in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, he's talking to the church, live peaceably with all. All being the big fat capital A, all, meaning all, right? Do you know that every week when we do the prayers of the people, we pray for our president and our governor, we pray for all the people in authority. Do you know why we do that? Because the Bible asks us to. First Timothy, first of all, then I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, which is why we have prayers of the people, be made for all that we may lead a peaceful and all, fat all, capital A, who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now, this does not mean the church never challenges the state. Um, Daniel kept on praying, even though there was a law, and he was thrown in the lion's den. John the Baptist got beheaded because he called out a Herod on living in sexual immorality, and he got his head cut off. Jesus is Lord, and that means Caesar is not. That means the president is not, and the USA is not. So Christians are called not to worship the state, but we are called to be a blessing within it. Our first citizenship and our first loyalty is in heaven, and that is a global vision. And we are called to be good citizens in our country. And to the Bible, those two are not mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? We're called to be both of those at the same time. The church hasn't always done this well. I think there have been times the church has been a little bit seditious. There have been more often that the church has been more loyal to the state than to the Lord. But that's not from the scriptures. Amen? That is not what we see coming out of Acts or the Gospels. The church is not an enemy of the state. Accusation number two, you're insane. (laughs) Paul goes on to give his defense in verses 2 to 23. He tells about lots of the things that if you've walked in our journey with the church so far, we've studied these things. So his early life, he was a persecutor of the church. Then he goes on to talk about his conversion and this, I love the way he talks about it in this passage, about his commissioning from Jesus to preach the light of the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he says what we would believe him to to preach at this point. He preaches the gospel, the news. He talks about how the Messiah was foretold. He would come and suffer. He would be raised again. And he says that Jesus is that Messiah and that anyone who puts faith in him will be saved and forgiven. And then we get the insanity accusation. Go to verse 24. I think this is on your second page. We're going to be kind of digging into this paragraph. You guys there? Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, this is a bully move for Festus. It's an insult. It's a way for him to get like a social, I think he caused some laughs. Think of Jabba making fun of Luke and all the weird Wookiees in the background, like, (laughs) you know. But he's not the first or the last to say that Christianity is insane, okay? I used to live in England, and I played in this band with a bunch of people who were not believers or people of faith at all, and they were much smarter than me. Most of them were PhDs, and uh, they were terrified that I was a Christian, they, I, they thought like I was brainwashed by some crazy, weird, like American cult. Uh, and we never really had a chance to talk about it because it was just so tense. We like played music together and that was amazing. But one time after a gig, one of my bandmates had drank enough pints to actually be comfortable enough to start asking me about it. And I'll never forget it. He was like, okay, man, 
you believe in, you believe in Jesus? I was like, yes. He's just like, you believe he literally rose from the dead? I was like, yes. He was like, you believe he's coming back? And I was like, yes. And I was like, and I don't think he's just Lord for me. I think he's Lord of you as well. And he was just like, you know, pint in hand, like, <laughs> like that. That's literally insane. I think the same thing happens to Jesus in the church. When Jews levy the insane ac- accusation against the church or Jesus, it comes in the form of blasphemy. In other words, this is crazy talk that isn't in line with the Torah, with the Old Testament scriptures. From the Greek cultural centers of power, it just comes as insanity. Um, when Paul's talking to the people in Athens and he talks about the resurrection, they mock him, it says in Acts 17. And right here, Festus is just like, dude, you're literally insane. Now, what about us? We don't have a temple to Yahweh or Athena in Madison, but I I do think we have a center of cultural doctrine and dogma. And where is that? Bascom Hill. Not just UW, but I think the academy in general are the places of our cultural power. State Street beautifully connects for us the two centers of power. You have the Capitol and you have Bascom Hill. And I love, as somebody said to me when I first got here, If you're at the Capitol, you have to move a little bit to the left to see Bascom Hill. And if you're on Bascom Hill, you have to move a little bit to the right in order to see the Capitol. (laughs) Um, But they're right there. And today, very often, I think the accusation is levied by those in cultural authority that the church is insane, that we are a fundamentalist, regressive, progress-stopping cult. And we're smeared with a bunch of labels. We're labeled as an institution of hate. If you're a Christian, you've probably had to work through some of those things. If you're here and you're visiting, my hunch is you've probably wondered Are Jesus people like this? How does Paul respond? Look back with me. Verse 25. This is so good. He's just been publicly humiliated, okay? Verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. Man, you got to love Paul. He doesn't insult back. This is Paul of Tarsus, St. Paul, one of the most brilliant people in the history of the world. And don't you think he had a few things shred him? If it was me, I would have been like, okay, let's go, Festus. You know, like, you want to talk philosophy and theology with me? But he doesn't. He's so calm, and he's respectful. He says, no, I'm not insane. This is really logical. I'm speaking true words. What you find throughout Acts is when Jews challenge Christians, that Christian teaching the gospel is blasphemous. You find that they reason with them from the scriptures. You see that a lot in the early part of Acts when it's mainly a conversation between Jesus and the Jewish people or the early church, which was primarily Jewish and Jewish people. They want to show them like, no, this is... Jesus really is the fulfillment of Old Testament hope. And when Greeks, smart professor types, you know, say the church, you're just, a, you're just a cultish hoax. This is insane. They reason with them. They don't say it's spiritual you wouldn't understand. They go, no, this is logical. I want to I talk about it with you. They want to show that Christianity makes sense. It's beautiful. It's true. It's commiserate with human experience. Now, has the church done and said some things that were insane before? Yes. Okay? I feel like whenever I talk with people about this, they're like, didn't you persecute somebody who said the world was round? You know, it's like, yeah. But again, that is not coming from 
the scriptures. Amen? We, the church has been insane in so many ways. Jesus was challenging the church. The Christian faith will look and sound insane at points because it is so different and challenges so deeply the dogmas of the cultural right and left in our country, but it is not insane. It is the cosmic, ancient, deep wisdom of God. And so we reason, we persuade with love and humility. I read uh, Frank Bruni's column in the New York Times, who's a columnist, and he's not a person of faith and actually has, has been pretty antagonistic towards the church often in the past, but I still love his column and I read it. And uh, a couple months ago, he wrote a column about different beliefs of the human body and sexuality in the country and showed this statistic that showed a, a huge swath of the country didn't agree with him on sexuality. And so he labeled it, as often happens, as all people who are committed to hate, which that happens on both sides. So that's just not left or right or anything. That's just an unfortunate part of our discourse. But a couple weeks later, he came out with another column because a person had written him and said, I disagree with you about a few things, but I don't hate you. And he said, actually, I love your column, and I want to dialogue with you about this. And I was shocked, first of all, at the tact this person took in speaking to him. And then second, Frank Bruni took the rebuke. He said, wow. And he wrote a whole nother column in the New York Times saying, I misused that word, and I misrepresented people. I was shocked because it was like one of the few moments in our cultural discourse that there was like a bit of like crossing the aisle. But it was because this guy was dignifying to Frank Bruni and loved his column and reached out to him and just said, no, no, I'm, it's, it's not the case. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the Lord. Accusation number three. You're trying to convert people. Go back to verse 25 with me. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. This hasn't been done in a corner. He's like, surely you know about all this. King Agrippa, he fixes his gaze. Remember, Festus is the governor, so he's the lower guy, and he fixes his gaze on King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And people who are much smarter than me about this era of culture and history tell me that this was <gasps> shocking that a prisoner would speak directly and that boldly to the king. He's at this point putting him on his back foot in the middle of Jabba's court. When they have the cultural position, Paul flips it and goes, I know you believe the prophets. So people are shocked. And Agrippa trying to take it back, the, cultural, the, the moment there, says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So in the middle of all this tense moment, Agrippa is like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
are you literally right now trying to convert me to Christianity? And everybody's like, (laughs) you know, they're all laughing again. The church gets this today for sure, right? We do not like the idea of trying, of someone persuading someone else of something. It is ideological colonialism. It's coercion. Proselytizing, that's like, oh, we don't do that. We prefer for people to believe what they want, and then we just, we don't talk about it. How does Paul respond? Look at verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only rattles them. In other words, Paul's saying, whether it's right now or whether you give me more time and it takes a long time, I not only want you to become a Christian, I want every single person here in this room to become a Christian like me. Except, Paul says, from a place that only can come from the Holy Spirit, except I don't want you to have to suffer like I have. I don't want you to have to be a prisoner like I am, Festus, Herod Agrippa, who slaughtered all the people of God. Can you believe that? I imagine that at this point, it's been kind of like a spectacle, but I think when Paul says, absolutely, and I want every other person in here to be one too, I think that it got a lot more intense. I imagine like a centurion who's like sitting in the corner, like guarding the door that's kind of been laughing. All of a sudden, here's Paul, basically bring him into it. I want everybody who's heard what I just said to believe it, and then I think it became really tense and beautiful. What boldness. So is Paul actually trying to persuade these people to convert? Yes. Of course he is. He met the living God. He was transferred and forgiven of his brutish, legalistic, religious craziness into a life of light and grace and peace. He met Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. Of course he wants people to meet him too. But he's not coercive. Catch that? He's not manipulative at all. He's not offensive. He's not overbearing. But he is there to declare that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins, was vindicated by God in his resurrection, and one day will come to judge the living and the dead. If you're still, not, if you're still suspicious of evangelism, this story might help. Uh, this past year, a guy from Greenpeace showed up at my door, which is great to talk about this because it's the big climate strike weekend, right? And was I in the middle of something with my family, and was it very obnoxious and annoying to be like, have to stop and talk about Greenpeace? Yes, absolutely. But I wasn't mad because I knew this guy cared so much about the earth. And he cared so much about it. He wasn't just saying, you know what, I really care about our stewardship of creation, um, but I'll just let people believe what they want to believe about it. That's fine. And just let it go. No, this guy cared so much that he wanted to do something about it. And so he gave his free time to campaign around my neighborhood and talk to people about the earth and raising awareness for taking care of our world. Now, if I had stopped him in the middle of that conversation and gone, whoa, bro, are you trying to get me to care about the environment right now? What would he have said? Yes, that's exactly why I'm here. That's why I'm holding this like clipboard thing for you to sign. I want you to care. If that's true for environmentalism, How much more true is it for the gospel of Jesus? Amen? Which has a greater vision for the environment than Greenpeace does. Not that Greenpeace has a bad one, but Jesus was the OG tree hugger. (laughs) But it also offers so much more for the world beyond and fullness of life in a spiritual, physical, emotional realm. It's everything. Of course. 
again, one time when I was in England, I was, I was playing in a session in a pub of folk musicians. There's probably like 30 people there, and it came around to me, and I spoke. And where I lived in England, Americans didn't go. And they were like, you're American. Why are you here? And I had to say, <clears throat> I work for a church, which is like painting a scarlet letter on your head. I'm used to it now, but it was weird. So everything goes dead quiet, and this one old British guy in the corner goes, are you here to save all us sinners? And I gulped and went, yeah. <laughs> and they were all like, nah! <laughs> you know, like kept on playing. It was great. Paul's so bold. So listen, if you're here today, you need to know I want you to meet Jesus. If you stopped me or anyone else in church and said, what are we doing here? Are you trying to get me to care about this and follow Jesus? Yes, because we've met the living God. He is my peace and my joy. He's everything. Somebody did that for me. That's the only reason I'm here. And so that's why we want to do it for other people. But there's no coercion. There's no manipulation. That's such a posture thing. And I hope you guys can see that in Paul and in Jesus. It's not like the Hotel California where you come in the church and you check in and then you can never leave. It's like, I want to tell you about Jesus. And then you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? You can leave at any time you want. It is a dialogue, right? Paul's asking him to reason with him. So if you're interested, come talk to me afterwards. I would love to reason with you from the scriptures, from life, how beautiful Jesus is and that he's Lord. So the church is accused of being an enemy of the state. Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman. We're not breaking laws. We're here to bless this place, whatever culture or government I'm a part of. The church is accused of being insane. And Paul says, I'm not crazy. This is logical. It's true. The church is accused of proselytizing. And Paul basically says, well, yeah, but I'm not doing what you think I'm doing. I'm not here to force anybody into anything. The church proposes, it does not impose. That's a great John Paul II quote. <laughs> this story of Paul is greater than Paul himself. I hope you get that. This is a picture of the church, which means it's a picture of you and me. In chains and rags before the world, before the authorities and the principalities, proclaiming the gospel in love, in humility, and in truth. Amen? This is the task of the church, no matter the response, no matter the verdict of that court. Many times Jesus and the church were put on trial and people believed, right? But many times they were mocked, and we both know that both of these men, what happened to them outside of these courts? What happened to them? They died. They were convicted and condemned and executed. Jesus goes from the trial to Calvary, to the cross. That was the verdict of the world. No matter how beautiful your, your persuasion is, you're done. But what happened after the cross? And you know what that was? God's verdict. He was condemned by the powers of the world. And in Acts, it's so clear. His resurrection was a sign of God's verdict, was no, Jesus is the Messiah. He is true. He is the one living God. And what's more, this is where it gets really good. Jesus teaches us that our lives, whether you are a Christian here today or not, your life, like the Gospel of Acts, like the book of Acts, like the Gospel of Luke, what we've been studying, will climax in court, in a trial. 
except it won't be Pilate or Caiaphas or Festus or Agrippa. It will be Jesus. This is the great, amazing drama flip and twist of all history, is that one day the powers will stand before Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the person who was tried and condemned by the world, but vindicated by God in his resurrection. And the call, therefore, is to run to Jesus and put your trust in him if you have not. And again, it is my passion and desire, just like it was for Paul's, that more and more people would come to do that. But also, if you have put your trust in Jesus, the call is to stand firm and to be steadfast and endure through whatever trials that you face for the sake of Jesus. And Jesus ties those things together. Remember, he says, don't be ashamed in front of other people about me. I won't for you. So I just want to finish with this beautiful passage from 1 Timothy, which ties, it says, you stand strong in whatever trial you're in, and you look to Jesus in the way that he stood in his trials so that you'll see him one day. We'll finish with this. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until when the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.